Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? It's a rare early morning recording for us. Normally, we do this in the afternoon, and we both have our morning voices. Yeah, it's uh, and my you're gonna have to forgive me if my dogs interrupt us because the morning time is their time with me. So I'm doing my best to make them just lay quietly until we can have some afternoon time today. Exactly. I will just uh, tease the audience by saying we're up early because we had to do a call right before this with someone who may be appearing in season four, and they live on the other side of the earth, and uh, early morning was better for them. So uh, that's what we did. And more on that later right now we're talking about this episode which is season three episode seven it's just flying along early morning for us it was afternoon for him so yes it was he he did the podcast when we would normally do the podcast he did he was yeah he was just about right on time yeah exactly right in the right in the wheelhouse for us but not not really for us but really this season is just uh is flying by if this is episode seven how many is there five more then uh, I, after this one, there's 12 total plus a bonus, unless something happens, but should be 12 plus a bonus. So you can hold me to that if you want. Yeah. You don't have to. We're getting great responses from our last episode with Dr. Reed Quinton. People seem to really have enjoyed uh, having a, a layman, I guess, on, on the podcast. Someone who's not a professional magician, but who knows the terms and can do magic, but who has a whole different life. Yes. Completely separate from magic, uh, medical examiner. That's yeah. uh, if you haven't heard that episode, it's worth listening. Yeah, jump back and see that. But today we're going to talk to our old friend Ayla Drescher, and she's going to talk about bar magic. And we've got another Eli Mark short story. In this case, it's called the Secondary Convincer, which includes a small mention of bar magic. So it it made sense to have Kayla come on and talk about bar magic. But before we dig into that, which is really fascinating, let's just dip into the story and then we'll come back. So here is the secondary convincer. The secondary convincer. I'm sorry, were you doing a magic trick or something? I'd like to say this was the first time I'd ever received that response to a performance, but I'd be lying. There were just the two of us hanging out at the bar, him seated in front of it, me working behind it. And since I was holding a deck of cards, I had made the foolish assumption that I was, in fact, doing a trick. No, I'm just goofing around, I lied. Practicing, I guess. I thought briefly about that old adage, if a tree falls on a magician in a forest doing a trick, and the only other person there isn't paying attention Was it actually a trick? Okay, I know that isn't truly an old adage, but it probably should be. The customer picked up his drink and noticed a playing card stuck to the bottom of the glass. He peeled it off. Is this part of the trick? Well, not anymore, I said. I took the card from him and, still in practice mode, tried a couple of moves, finally making the card seem to disappear. The effect was pretty clunky. Perhaps practicing wasn't such a bad idea. I wish you could make me disappear just as easily, he said, before taking another long sip from his drink. My lone customer sitting at the bar, Mark Kelly, 
had recently become something of a regular. For reasons I didn't completely understand, the watering hole had started attracting police types. Kelly wasn't strictly in law enforcement, but considered himself law enforcement adjacent. He was a former cop who was now a freelance investigator for big insurance companies. He may have been in shape during his cop days, but they were long behind him now. He was beefy, headed toward Burley, with a round face and big, doughy hands. Even though it was cool in the bar, he always looked a little moist. I imagined his cholesterol numbers and blood pressure figures were nothing to write home about. Kelly glanced at his watch, down the rest of his drink, and pushed the glass toward me. More of the same, please. You keep looking at your watch. I set down the deck of cards and picked up the glass. Are you supposed to be somewhere? He shook his head. In 35 minutes, I have to call my client and give him some bad news. He has to make a $350,000 payout. Yikes, I said. Yikes in spades, Kelly replied. He's not going to be happy about it. Despite their marketing, which may suggest otherwise, insurance companies don't like writing out checks, regardless of the size. In fact, I get the sense this particular client would prefer to not even own a checkbook. I placed the new drink in front of him and he took a quick sip. This is not the kind of news anyone likes to receive or deliver. And I have this sick feeling he may be inclined to blame the messenger. I know I would. So, needless to say, I'm not looking forward to calling in my report. At least you don't have to do it in person, I offered. A small blessing, he said with a sigh. The thing is, I've done my due diligence. In my heart, I know the claimant did something sneaky. I just can't prove it. That's a common issue with magic tricks as well, I said. I attempted a quick one-handed cut with a deck of cards. Yes, more practice was definitely in my future. Sometimes there's a point in a trick where the audience knows you did something sneaky. They can sense it. They just don't know exactly what it was. Yep, that's what I'm up against. This guy did something. I just don't know what it was. But everything fell into place too neatly. It's too perfect, he nodded. Exactly. It's too perfect. And that's why you don't believe it, because it's too perfect, he nodded again. We have the same thing in magic, I said, which we call, not so surprisingly, the too perfect theory. Oh, heavens, we're not talking about that old chestnut again, are we? This came from my Uncle Harry, who had tottered over from the far corner for a refill on his ginger ale. It's a questionable theory to some, he continued, as he set his empty glass on the bar. To others, it's a stone-cold fact. And then there's a happy majority who never even think about it. Put me in that ladder camp, thank you very much. I was just referencing it in connection to a case he's working on, I explained. I added ice to the empty glass and then refilled it with ginger ale, which was Harry's afternoon drink of choice. Although, unbeknownst to him, he was now getting diet ginger ale on secret instruction from his wife. 
Mercifully, Harry hadn't appeared to recognize the difference. If he did, I knew I'd never hear the end of it. So, what's too perfect about this case you're working on? Harry said, as he pulled himself up on a stool. Or is it all terribly hush-hush and on a need-to-know basis? Kelly shook his head. It's been in all the papers and all over the Internet. I mean, when you discover you own artwork painted by Adolf Hitler, people tend to sit up and take notice. I set Harry's glass in front of him on the bar, but he was too caught up in this new twist to even notice. I hadn't heard anything about this, he said. Sounds fascinating. Tell me more. The case Mark Kelly outlined for us over the next few minutes had caused a small sensation when it broke. A local art dealer, the TR Gallery, had been bequeathed a number of old paintings and a sizable financial contribution by a recently deceased wealthy patron. The bequest came with one proviso. The gallery needed to produce a special exhibition featuring all the pieces in the collection. This they had dutifully done only to discover, via an eagle-eyed and knowledgeable patron, that one of the pieces was likely the work of the infamous former German chancellor. Experts were summoned, tests were performed, and it quickly became evident the painting was, in fact, authentic. The gallery was showing a picture brushed by Adolf Hitler himself. Once the legitimacy of the painting had been established by the experts, Kelly continued, the owner did a smart thing, PR-wise. He declared the gallery would never sell the painting. Instead, once this exhibition was closed, they would warehouse the piece, preserving it, but keeping it from the public eye. It would be available for academic study, but the gallery would not profit from it in any manner. Smart move. I agreed. Right, Kelly said with a shake of his head. Then, for good measure, he went ahead and insured it for $350,000. Harry raised an eyebrow at this information. Is it worth $350,000? Undoubtedly to someone, Kelly said. Of course, the gallery owner doesn't want to be the fellow who sells it, because then that's how his gallery is labeled forever. The place that sells Hitler paintings. Not good for their brand, I would imagine, Harry mumbled. Not good for anyone's brand, I agreed. But it never came to that, did it? Kelly shook his head. Before the exhibition closed, a couple of fanatics broke into the gallery one night and destroyed the painting. And now the gallery owner is due a check for $350,000? Well, he thinks he is, Kelly said. Me? I'm not so sure. How do you mean destroyed? Harry asked. He clearly had lost interest in his refreshed ginger ale. I slid a coaster under the glass, which had begun to perspire as much as Kelly. Do you know what the burglars actually did? We know exactly what they did, because they videotaped it and posted it online. Kelly pulled out his phone as he continued. Ironically, the video itself has gotten close to 350,000 hits so far. He made a couple of quick swipes across the face of the phone and then turned it toward us. 
The video was silent, but the actions spoke for themselves. It began on what I assumed was the Hitler painting, a pleasant watercolor of a simple pastoral scene. A masked figure entered the shot and removed the framed artwork from the wall. He, or she, the mask and a bulky jumpsuit made identification impossible, then carefully removed the painting from its frame. The frame was tossed aside as the camera followed the burglar across the dark gallery toward a cable where a paper shredder had been set up. The burglar switched on the machine and carefully fed the small painting into the slot on the top of the device. The camera panned down as the shredded pieces of the canvas formed a small pile on the floor. The masked burglar then removed a bottle from their pocket and poured the contents on the pile. Then they lit a match and tossed it on the floor. The small shredded heap burst into an immediate blaze, sending a spray of flames a couple feet into the air. The camera held on the burning mound for several moments and then suddenly went black. Mark Kelly spun the screen around, shut off the app, and returned the phone to his pocket. Before you ask, yes, we did tests on the video and the ashes, he said. It's not a deep break. There are no edits in the video. What you see is what happened, and the remains, the ashes, are consistent with a canvas from that era. Interesting, I said. I looked over at Harry, who was stroking his beard. I was pretty sure his train of thought was heading in the same direction as mine. So, from the gallery owner's perspective, this event, the break-in, the shredding, the burning, was the best thing that could have happened, right? Kelly nodded. Absolutely. He's no longer stigmatized for owning the painting, yet he also is now the happy recipient of a check for $350,000, or will be after I make that call. Of course, Harry offered. If he's the unscrupulous type and the painting hadn't actually been destroyed, he could go ahead and sell it on the black market and make an additional 350000 or more without the stigma of being the guy who sells Hitler paintings. He sure could, Kelly said. Harry sat quietly for a few moments and then looked down at the bar. He seemed surprised to see his glass of ginger ale in front of him. He looked up at me. Well, to begin with, that's an odd thing, isn't it? That secondary convincer, I mean? I nodded. That's the first thing I thought of. The secondary what? Kelly said. The convincer, I explained. It's a term we use in magic. It's the steps you add during a magic trick to remove from the audience's mind all the different ways the trick could have been done. You're closing doors to possible solutions as you perform the illusion, Harry added. Exactly. So once you've eliminated all those options, the only conclusion they can come to is what you did was actual magic. I'm not sure I follow, Kelly said. I picked up the deck of cards. Well, for example, as I'm doing a card trick, I may turn the deck in such a way that you can see that all the cards are different. I don't draw any attention to this, but it convinces you it's a real deck and that all the cards aren't the same. So the audience member isn't thinking, wow, 
The deck consists of nothing but the King of Diamonds. That's how we knew my card, Harry added. Then at a key point, I'll turn over both hands, or gesture, or something, so you can see that I haven't palmed a card. You're just knocking down possible explanations like dominoes in a line, Harry said. Exactly. I haven't drawn any attention to the fact, but I've demonstrated the way you thought the trick was being done isn't the way it's being done. I've closed off that method. It's a convincer. A good magic trick is loaded with convincers, each one destroying another option in your mind, Harry said. He took a quick sip of his ginger ale. I was surprised and relieved he couldn't distinguish diet from the full-strength version. Convincers aren't consciously registered by the audience members, but they subtly lead them toward an inevitable conclusion. They've just seen actual magic. Okay, Kelly said slowly, but how does that relate to this video and the destruction of the painting? Well, your burglars used two convincers when they only needed one to make us believe they had destroyed the painting, I explained. They shredded the painting and they burned it. What's the point of that? Exactly, Harry said. It doesn't make sense until you recognize the second convincer isn't simply a repeat of the first one. We don't need that again. We've seen the painting shredded. It's been destroyed. Why destroy it a second time? What the second convincer was designed to do, I said, was to take the focus off the shredder and put it back on the painting. Yes, they don't want us thinking about that darn shredder anymore, Harry added. Forget about it. Just focus on the destroyed painting. Focus on the fire. Look, look, there's a big, bright, shiny fire, I said. In reality, what they did doesn't require a secondary convincer, Harry grumbled. In fact, its very existence puts the validity of the first convincer, i.e., the shredder, in question. If the shredder destroyed the painting, why are we destroying it again? A convincer is designed to eliminate doubt, not feed it. He shook his head as he took another sip from his glass. In my mind, this was a very sloppy trick indeed. So you think it was a trick? Kelly said, his face brightened for the first time since he'd sat down at the bar. Oh, it was absolutely a trick, Harry said. Then how was it done? Harry took that moment to mention, not for the first time, that the bar stools weren't merely uncomfortable, but bordered on medieval torture devices. Since it appeared this conversation might be a long one, I moved our discussion to one of the many empty tables of which the bar had no shortage. Once we were settled in, Harry picked up where we'd left off at the bar. Offhand, I could think of maybe four or five ways to do it. However, if we believe in Occam's razor, and I certainly do, then the simplest answer is probably the right one. Harry turned to me. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Not always, but in this case, I think yes, I said. The counterfeit bill detector. Harry nodded. Exactly. Do we still sell them? I thought about this for a long moment, 
mentally scanning the magic shop next door and its gag and gift corner. I think so, I said without confidence. Let me go check. Even though I just settled into a somewhat comfortable chair, I once again jumped up and headed across the room. In the early days of owning the bar, I'd find myself making several trips a day between this space and the magic shop next door. That was fine during the summer, but once the hard reality of the Minnesota winter hit, I knew I needed another solution. I needed a door between the bar and the magic store. Once I'd announced that decision, there'd been a lot of discussion about the nature of that egress. Harry wanted a sliding bookcase that would require a magic word to open, a la the magic castle. Nathan, the kid's magician who basically ran the magic shop while I was managing the bar, said he preferred an optical illusion of some kind. One of those 3D murals, something that delights the mind, he had said. While I was all for delighting the mind, I was also stuck in the actual physical world. There was only one spot on the wall that would work for a door on this side and also match up on the other side. There wasn't room for a sliding bookcase or some sort of full-scale illusion. There was space, just barely, for a standard 36-inch door, which is what I had installed. It's not fancy, but it gets the job done. I had said to Harry as I completed the construction. That might be the ideal motto for your business card, Harry had responded with a grunt before returning to his friends in the back of the bar. Although I had left my business card as it was, the phrase returned to my mind every time I crossed through that doorway into the Chicago magic shop. I'd be the first to admit the store is, in a word, disorganized. It's not like there's some subtle level of organization going on, which isn't immediately visible to the eye. There isn't. It's just sort of a mess. Nathan had done a great job of creating at least a bit of order out of the chaos, but we still had a long way to go. The section of the store devoted to gags and gag gifts reflected that organizational structure, but in miniature which meant it was impossible to find anything. Consequently, it took me longer to locate what I was looking for than it really should have. But after several moments of shoving aside fake vomit and joy buzzers and snake-filled cans of mixed nuts, I found what I was looking for. Moments later, I set a small cardboard box on the table in front of Mark Kelly and Harry. This was a big seller back in the day. I said as I folded back the top flap and pulled the device from the box. There were several different versions manufactured, but I've always preferred this one. Yes, with this one, the effect is cleaner, Harry agreed. I placed the plastic box on the table. It was about nine inches tall and with a curved top reminiscent of a mailbox, but painted in industrial gray tones. It certainly didn't look fancy. On the upper half of the front panel was a clear window, but it revealed only darkness within. The top of the device was adorned with a simple metal slot with black rollers visible within. The words counterfeit bill detector were stenciled in small letters across the front. What's it do? Kelly said as he peered at it doubtfully. 
I could tell he was wondering how this plastic tchotchke was related to his pending phone call. We used them all the time in the shop when I was a kid, I explained. When someone would want to buy something using a $20 bill. Or higher, Harry added. A rare occurrence, but yes. Since the advent of credit cards, we rarely see cash anymore these days. Have you got a 20 I can use? Kelly seemed surprised at the request, but a moment later, he had pulled a bill from his wallet. I took the 20 and pretended to examine it closely. We'd say something about how there'd been a lot of counterfeit bills being passed in the area recently, and so we'd gotten this counterfeit bill detector. We'd explain that it was designed to identify fakes, and then we'd take their 20 and insert it in the top. As I said this, I inserted Kelly's 20 into the slot on the top of the device. A small motor immediately kicked in and pulled the bill into the box. Two things then happened simultaneously. First, there was a slight shredding sound. At the same time, through the small window on the front, we could see the shredded pieces of the bill as they dropped down out of sight. These elements, the motor pulling the bill into the device, the shredding sound effect, and the apparent torn pieces floating past the viewing window all combined to create a very realistic effect. It really looked and sounded like his $20 bill had been neatly shredded by the device. Mark Kelly chuckled. I'm sure that panicked a few people. It always got a great reaction, Harry agreed. One guy almost took a swing at me once, so I quickly showed him how the trick was done. That sounded like a cue to me. I spun the device around and popped open a small hatch on the back. The unharmed $20 bill lay safely within the compartment. I pulled it out and held it up for inspection. And you think something similar happened with the Hitler painting? Kelly said as he took the small machine and examined it more closely. I handed him the bill and he ran it through a second time. I would not be surprised. Harry said, and given what it probably cost to modify a paper shredder to safely pull off that effect, I would also not be surprised if your gallery owner has it squirreled away somewhere. It would be quite the creation, and he doesn't strike me as the type to destroy a piece like that willy-nilly. Kelly set the device back on the table. Now I understand the need for the, what did you call it? The secondary convincer. I said. It absolutely focused our attention on those ashes and away from the shredder, he said. As intended, Harry said. Kelly glanced at his watch. Well, I've got to make my phone call now. Thanks, guys. You've just made a multinational insurance conglomerate very happy. That's all we ever wanted in life, I said. Mission accomplished, Harry added. Kelly pulled his phone from his pocket and began to dial as he headed toward the door. I slid the device back into its box and stood up as well. Eli, can you grab me a refill while you're up? Harry asked as he held out his now empty glass. Sure thing. And uh, Eli? I spun around. What? This time, can you make it a real ginger ale? Not that watered-down diet nonsense? Even at his advanced age, I realized I was rarely going to be able to get anything past Harry Marks.
Are you performing or practicing? I looked up to see Mark Kelly standing in front of me. Until a few moments ago, I had thought I was the only one in the bar. With me, it's sometimes hard to tell the difference, I said. What can I get you? He waved this away. No time. I'm my way to a meeting, he said. I just wanted to stop by and thank you and your uncle for your help on that painting thing. The Hitler painting? That's the one, he said with a grin. You both were absolutely right. I turned in my report, the company leaned on the police, and one search warrant later, they uncovered the modified shredder. Harry was right. The gallery owner couldn't bear to toss it out. It was a work of art. Kelly shrugged. Or else he's just lazy, or stupid, or both. But they found the shredder, they found the original painting, and he confessed to having staged the whole thing. Fraud charges are pending. Your client has to be happy about that. Who knows? He's in insurance. How happy can he ever hope to be? I laughed. I'll let Harry know that you stopped by. One other thing, Kelly said as he gestured toward the wall behind me. Is there any chance I can buy that off of you? I turned. He was pointing at the counterfeit bill detector, which I'd placed next to the cash register. I'd left it there after our earlier meeting. It was easier than going to the trouble of walking next door and finding a place for it on that messy gag gift shelf. As a memento, I suggested. Something like that. Here, why don't you take it on the house, I said as I grabbed the small machine and handed it to him across the bar. As it turns out, people who use cash to buy drinks don't find this thing as funny as you might think. Go figure. Thanks. He hefted the box in his hand as he headed toward the door. With nothing else to do and no one to talk to, I did what I should have been doing for the past hour. I picked up my deck of cards and began to practice. As expected, it was slow going. Improvements, when they came, were at best incremental. That's the secondary convincer. Okay. You know, the supposed destruction of the painting was drawn from, I don't know if you remember this, Jim, the famous Banksy incident where one of his paintings was auctioned off the Christie's or Sotheby's or something. And the moment they said sold, there was this whirring sound from the frame and the image that Banksy created slid down into the base of the frame and then came out as shredded pieces. Uh -oh. The ultimate Banksy joke, you know, you buy my artwork and the moment you do that, it's destroyed. The shredder didn't quite work and the artwork only got halfway through making an even more interesting image of half the picture being there and half of it being shredded. There's some dispute as to whether or not the auction house was in on it or not. If I can find anything, I'll put uh, something in the show notes because it's just such a funny Banksy idea to do that. And then when I saw that, I immediately thought of a gag gift that I bought years ago. I don't know, Jim, if you've seen them as well. It's a, supposed to be a counterfeit bill checker and you oh, take yeah. 20 and you put it in the top and then you can see sure. a little window, it shreds. And there's a lot of uh, kind of inside baseball in that story where we talk more about convincers and canceling out methods and all that. Can you think of anything you do in your limited magic show where you are doing convincers or canceling out methods as you're doing it just to persuade the audience this is true magic not in not off the top of my head in uh the magic show that i do but i did a production of 
the mystery of Irma Vep, which is a very fun two-person play, but the design is for the audience to believe there are four or more actors doing the show. So uh, it is a symphony in Velcro as your costumes are ripped off you. you, you it, literally, you're saying things like, I think I hear the Lord of the Manor coming now. And you exit and then come back on in a completely different costume in what seems to be an impossibly small amount of time. And there's a scene in that play where we believe they've they've got one of the uh characters is in a, a a prison cell in the house that and we stumbled on this and it requires some you know some misdirection and some magic in order to sell that correctly it's it was me as the the character in the cell and at the i would put my hand through the bars uh, so that the people could see me. And uh, we had a long discussion, the director and I, about how to make me reappear so that it cancels out the fact that I could have been that character. And initially, the door he wanted me to enter in was so far away that it was obvious there were two people. So I said, if we moved it to this closer door, watch how this changes the effect and that's what we settled on. And it was all about canceling out. Yeah. Was I playing both roles and this made it look like maybe I was, maybe I wasn't, but it was clear that it was just a, a an interesting. Yeah. So there it is for me. So the but, beauty of convincers is when they're done right, they just sail right past you because you are in fact convinced. That's correct. Yeah. You don't question them anymore because you're convinced. Yeah. Well, as I said, there's just a little tiny bit of bar magic or Eli's doing a little bit of bar magic in that story. And I'd learned very late, like way too late, that bar magic and close-up magic, hey, you know what? They're not exactly the same thing. If you have a close-up act, that doesn't mean you can just step behind a bar. Yeah. It's a completely different uh, venue. And so you can't interchange the two, although they share obviously some similarities and the fact that they're both, you know, magic tricks. Um, but in understanding the difference, it was great to get a chance to uh, chat with the uh, host of this Shazam podcast, the one and only Kayla Drescher. But before we got into the difference between close-up and bar magic, we first needed just a, a little background. So the last time you were on, we were on a pretty specific topic and we didn't really dive into your magic history. So what is your magic history? So I've been doing magic since I was seven and I started out doing a lot of magic just to music, which was more silent, lots of kids parties, as you do when you're a kid and just trying to get experience and stuff. And then I quit magic to go to college because I had no interest in really doing it. I just kind of was, you know, still around magic, going to conventions or stuff, but didn't have any interest in performing it myself. Uh, but then after I graduated college and got like a real person job, said <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> and dove pretty quickly into just spending a year um, trying to almost relearn magic as a professional now, because taking four years off and then still being at the same level, if not slightly behind that I was when I was like 17, 18 years old, right. I had to take the year and just really beef up skill and, 
get experience and all of that. And that's when I got into, uh, I got a job as a bartender and was doing magic from behind the bar. So that's really where I learned how to cut my teeth and um, develop how I perform with my personality and all that jazz. And so um, I've been doing bar magic since 2012. And now, uh, although mostly what I do is more parlor stuff, more private events, corporate things, I do still perform bar magic, mainly just at magic venues like the Chicago Magic Lounge or the Magic Castle. But it's an expertise of mine, I guess, if you if yeah. you want to like label it as an expertise. It's for sure something that I know a lot about, um, have a lot of opinions on and uh, and really, really, really love. One thing I didn't know about you in doing the modicum of research that I do is that you won the Search for the Next Great Magician event on the Today Show from David Copperfield. I had no idea that even existed. What was that? What was that experience like? That was a really well-timed experience for like my own self-esteem because that was about eight or nine months into that year I was talking about where I was like, how do I do magic as a professional? What does this look like? My skill level is so far behind. Uh-oh. Uh, and I had been playing with this trick at the bar using bottle caps and had kind of noticed that with a, a certain move in magic, uh, I really didn't like it. I thought it was really awkward. And everybody, every version I had seen, I was like, that just doesn't look like, like if I could actually change color of an of a coin like change it from a silver coin to a copper coin i would never do it that way that would just not be how my hands moved and that feels weird and i would started playing with bottle caps and noticed these properties of how bottle caps are made just naturally and like how they work really well with magic and had developed this thing and a buddy of mine in boston where i was living at the time was like hey i'm submitting for this contest you should do it too and i did and I just happened to get a call from them that was like, hey, can you change a couple things and send us a video and like, we'll go from there. And I did. And they were like, great, you free on Monday? Cause we're gonna have you come down. And so yeah, I submitted for it and, and went down and it was very early in the morning. So I really don't remember very many of the details to be honest, cause it was, uh, it was only about a half a cup of coffee in and I was exhausted, but uh, performed. Uh, live on national television and won this contest to got to go out to Vegas and um, spend some time with Copperfield, see the show, get a tour of the museum. And it was just really cool to one, see the museum, obviously, because that's like just magic history. And uh, it was, it was a crazy, crazy, amazing experience. Um, get to spend some time with him and like just have some just people conversations, which was mm -hmm. cool. Not so mm -hmm. much about magic or anything, but just like, let's talk about food. Let's talk about life, you know, just, that but i think the idea of like i didn't really know how to use that to my advantage business-wise a friend of mine was like oh here are some quotes from the segment that you should put on your website but really just the idea of going okay i think i can do this i think that's that was the biggest thing for me at that time 23 year old being like i don't know and it's like oh if if this guy is gonna tell the world in a sense or at least people watching early morning television that i'm decent at magic maybe I'm decent at magic. And so it was maybe. this really lovely moment of some self-esteem boost. Um, I still use the quotes from the segment. I try very hard to steer people far, far away from watching it because it was a long time ago. I'll say that it's a yeah. long time ago. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was well, really great. We will not post a link. So don't well, bother looking for it. I will go look for it on my own quietly. Okay. Off to yeah. the show. Um, 
Uh, so uh, let's talk about this because you have you've been in highly produced magic shows like the Champions of Magic. What's it like doing close up magic for you know such a large group? How do you how do you grab and then hold their attention? Every magician who did a Zoom show during the pandemic can now answer that question. Uh, it's exactly the same, except that you're probably not wearing pajama pants, uh, huh? which most of us were doing during the pandemic. It's just, oh yeah, it's just screen is, you know, from my waist up. So I'm just going to wear whatever I want. And yeah. did I? Absolutely. Did companies pay me a lot of money to perform for their Zoom event? They did. They didn't know I was wearing sweatpants, whatever. I still, I won't admit it to them. Uh, it's funny because it actually was this brilliant transition into doing Zoom shows because for three or four years at that point, I had been pretty much primarily playing to a camera. And so I was doing close-up magic into a lens oh. uh, and having to relate to every single member of the audience without ever looking them in the face. And they were looking at my face on this gigantic projector screen, but I was just looking into this like shadow of a camera. And how do I make that work if the projector or the camera goes down? Or how do I make that work if there are 5,000 people instead of 800? And what does this look like in terms of like, is the audience connecting with me? And my, can the my brand of comedy come across here? And so it was like maybe about a six month learning experience for both me and the producer of the show was also my camera person. And so we really coordinated and choreographed a lot. And he was so great because he knew, because he knows magic and knows how to make magic look good. He, if something went wrong, he could easily just move the camera to the left an inch. And so no, the audience wouldn't see the thing that went wrong, stuff like that. So it was very, I had a lot of backup in that, in those moments, but it was really a cool experience to learn. And it just, it does prepare you for Zoom shows. You know, if you watch a Zoom magician and they're, they're kind of looking, doing magic here, you realize that they're looking at their own face as opposed to if they're looking at the camera, it's such a difference. All of a sudden they're actually, feels like they're making eye contact with you. And that's what I really had, that's what I had to learn on the fly. So it wasn't so much about how do you make close up magic work for a gigantic theater? It was how do I make entertainment on this small level work for 5,000 people at the same time? Anybody can make a card trick work for a room of 5,000. People do it all the time in, in shows. The question is, can you be equally as entertaining if it were two people or 5,000 people? And most people, the answer is no. We just happen to really hyper-focus on that. Mm -hmm. And I wish more people cared about it in that way. I think most, most magicians want to care more about the actual magic and the impact of the magic as opposed to the relationship between the magician and the audience. And so for me, that was because that was a focus right at the beginning. We were really able to make that work pretty quickly. You know, this is a theme that's come up quite a bit this season is that relationship. We had Dr. Larry Haas on a couple episodes ago, and we were talking uh, about a conversation we'd had last season with Michael Close about his style of restaurant magic versus Eugene Berger's style. And for those of you who are playing the Eugene Berger drinking game, now's the time. Um, and it, the, the discussion was about how Eugene insisted on sitting down and becoming part of the group. Uh, and relating to them that way. And it sounds like you figured out a way in front of 5,000 people to sit down with them and become part of the group. Is there a secret to that or is it just trial and error? Well, step one is you have to have a personality. <laughs> Which, so get get one of those if you can. Dang it. Uh, what do you get? Is, does Amazon? Is it? Uh, Jim, you, Jim, you're out. You're out. If you have Prime, 
No. Uh, it's okay. yeah, but it it it's not on Prime. You can order it through Amazon, but the company right. is in a different country. Um, China, very far away. You said you would. All right. Fine. Uh, it does. It does help. Uh, I like to joke about it, but it is very beneficial when you actually have uh, something entertaining to offer that's not the props or it's not the magic. And uh, Eugene certainly has that or had that. Michael certainly has that. And so when you have an actual personality, it's it makes relating to and, and talking to your audience significantly easier because uh, then if you don't want to be funny, you don't have to. But if you want to be funny, that being funny is much easier if you actually have a point of view in the world. Uh, but magic is way more entertaining if you actually are a person first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's often hard to do. So step one, get a personality. Step two, uh, you have to understand how people work and like how a lot of people work is it needs to feel like a conversation. A lot of people value eye contact. Some people don't value eye contact, but love the idea that eye contact gives you a a connection. So although you might not want to actually make eye contact, at least the idea of somebody looking at your face is helpful. They know that you're actually listening or paying attention or caring. And so when I'm talking to the audience, I need to be looking at their faces. So especially with the cameras, like if you looked at the projector screen and you would look at my face, it would feel like I was looking at your face too. And there was nothing in between us. There weren't other people. There wasn't like a a blur. There wasn't an out of focus. There wasn't a, a disconnect. It looked like you and I were the only people in the room. And that I think is what added that level of connection between me and the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the same with restaurants. It's the same with any show is I ask always if I can have my house lights at a low glow so that I can actually see their faces. Mm -hmm. If I can't see their faces, it's much harder for me to understand if the show is going over well, because I don't know if they're reacting. Mm -hmm. But if I can see their faces and I can have a genuine connection or make a comment about something somebody's doing, whatever it is, it is a huge benefit. So yes, it is very much that idea of, quote, sitting down with them at the table, but doing it in then the way that works for me. Uh, Eugene could actually sit down with them. Right. That's not so much my style, but it's this. It accomplishes the same thing. So when you were doing the the thing in you know in front of five thousand people or whatever the number was in front of the camera, were there any tricks where you brought someone on stage, or is it all just you solo wowing them? Yeah. So there were times I was in the audience doing magic, actually in the audience. Um, a lot of times that was you would watch me and the person. Uh, often it was a kid. You would watch me and the, the kid do something and then something silly would happen. And then I would look right at the camera very much in that like Jim Halpert in the office kind of way where it's just like, hmm, a little bit of a wink to the rest of you in this moment. Back to the kid. Uh, and yeah, if they if people came up on stage, same same deal as me and that person would be having a moment. And then I would look out to into the camera or to the audience itself and and go from there. So uh, it is a balance. You do have to kind of go back and forth. But yeah, there are plenty of times where I was calling people up on stage, which was great. Well, let me ask you this, because we talked to Matt King, I don't know how many episodes ago. And in the course of that, he explained that during his first five minutes on stage while he's doing his rope trick, he is picking out who is going to be uh, on stage for the rest of his show. Do you have that luxury or are you just kind of diving and hoping you get the right one? 
Oh, when you're in a theater of uh, 1,500 to 5,000 people, no, that doesn't exist. There's no luxury. Um, I did have earlier on in the tour, I did have uh, our amazing stage manager would go out and find uh, kids in the audience that were of a certain general age range, like older than five, less than 13, mm-hmm. and would put marks on the floor so that because as I'm walking through, I often couldn't see even the people that were right next to me. So I would just walk through on the floor looking for the mark and then be able to look. And they would tell me, oh, there are three seats in, there are two seats in, whatever. And then I would go for them. And that was hugely helpful because couldn't see anything. Now, uh, you know, I'm I'm no longer in Champions of Magic, but I now in my shows at the bar, in the theater, whatever it is, yes, in that first few minutes, I am looking for people that will fit exactly what I need. And that's that's a skill you develop over time. I mean, Mac, I'm sure is, has got like, boom, 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 got it because of his experience. I'm maybe a little bit slower or I like forget, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. You're, you're looking for those people very early on and then you kind of observe them throughout the show. Are they reactive? Are they too much? How drunk are they? And then you have to uh, decide whether or not they're actually going to be the person that you decide to call up on stage or not. Um, It's also good to have a backup because if for those who have listened to Shazam, uh, I'm a big fan of if somebody says they don't want to come up on stage, they don't come up on stage and we leave Mm -hmm. it at that. I say, would you join me? No. Great. No worries. Moving on. And then that's it. And so that I also have to have about three backups just in case somebody needs to say no. And then we can move on. So I for sure don't like relying on calling up that one person. But yeah, you do. You kind of scan and find those people very, very early on. And uh, now, having done a little on camera work myself from time to time, uh, it it seems that's a skill set what you're talking about right now, relating to an audience member and keeping the attention of the audience at the same time, being able to bounce back and forth between the audience member on stage and the audience by checking in the camera. Did you have a lot of on-camera experience before this or was this just, I'm going to just have to figure this out? This might be a really funny answer. Uh, So no, the answer is no. I don't have very much on-camera experience. I have primarily been... The only kind of performer I've ever been is a magician. Like I danced or I did some theater or, you know, some improv classes, sketch writing classes. But no, I'm not an on-camera. I'm not an actor. Nothing. Um, It's just been magic. I did train and other stuff to like get better, but magic has been it. The thing that I attribute a lot of that knowledge to is from basically the age of three years old, um, my dad and I would watch Victor Borga. Mm. And wow. uh, if you ever, if you go back and I, I tell everybody to just go watch Victor Berga because it's, it is timeless. It's classy. The comedy is strong. It's creative and unique and very, very personality driven. But the thing that was always brilliant about him is that when it was time to listen to the piano, he would sit at the piano and his shoulder would be facing the audience. And when it was time to laugh, he would turn and his face would face the audience. And even while he was playing, if he wanted to tell a joke, he would turn his shoulders and face towards the audience. And it was like this cue that the audience didn't understand that was, you're going to be laughing now. And then they would laugh and then he would turn his shoulder again and he would play the piano. And that is something I didn't even realize 
was in my head until I started doing it and was like, what am I doing? And then I realized, oh, it's, it's just the, instead of a piano, it's a camera. That's literally the Mm -hmm. only difference. Uh, and, so great. What a right? great, great, yeah. I will put in the show notes some links to Victor Borger with this caveat. Do not go to those links yet, because if you do, you won't come back. Do it yeah. after the show, because otherwise you're <laughs> going to go down a Victor Borger rabbit hole that you your family will have on. to bring you food. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's such an incredible performer mm-hmm. uh, who is sadly not as well known today as he should be. But uh, I, I think this may be the first time uh, Mr. Borges' name has been mentioned on this podcast. Yeah, but uh, the fact that you learned that trick from him just says what a smart performer you are because you recognized what he was doing, even if it was subconsciously. And then you and you did the thing that... Uh, that is my favorite thing when you get an idea like that is what's my version of that? How do I mm-hmm. make that work for me? So Yeah, and I think I thanks for saying that I'm a smart performer, but I think also I attribute it to just my parents are really old. And so we watched a lot of just old things, you know? Uh lots of golden girls, lots of designing women, just a lot old Doris Day movies, like just watched a lot of old things. Uh so Victor Borgo was just like a thing my dad and I did. And so yeah, I'm I'm lucky to have been exposed to that. You're also at that point ingesting, even though you don't realize it, the rhythms of uh, the the writers of the Golden Girls. Uh, I, I believe Susan Harris. Am I wrong about that? I'll cut it out if I'm wrong. But you can oh, learn. I think you can learn comedy by just listening to it yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. So once again, you have learned something about realize you're learning it, but you've then been able to put it into your work. Yep. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of my just kind of pausing and waiting when, you know, the audience, an audience member does something silly and I just kind of make a brief face and just pause. Uh, That's all from B. Arthur. But it's so hard to learn and it is so brilliant when they can do it. The best example, and I will try to put a link in the show notes to it, is there's a very famous clip from The Tonight Show when he had uh, actor Ed Ames on, and Ed Ames threw uh, an axe uh, at a figure they had, and it hit him right in the crotch. And it was Ed Ames's instinct to go undo it. And you can see Johnny hold on to him and go, nope, this is a moment. Wait till they're ready to do that next thing. And it's that ability to be smart enough to stop and go, I'm going to be quiet for a minute. Because the longer I'm quiet, the more this is going to build and the better it's going to get. And that is a skill you don't walk on stage with. You, you, uh, you'd learn that. Uh, I would mm-hmm. uh, point people toward our good friend, Derek Hughes, who is a master of taking the moment, waiting, waiting. Yeah. And it's going to get better and funnier because of his willingness to just wait you out. Yep. So, anyway, uh, you're in Chicago now. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm cold. What's, what, was the, what was the reason for that? It's a good question. Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in Connecticut and then I've kind of been bouncing all over since college. Uh, So I lived in Boston for a minute and then I briefly uh, was in Vegas and then I've been in LA for the last eight or nine years. And after, after the pandemic and the lockdown and stuff, I think just like a lot shifted in uh, both me and my partner Harrison's industries. Harrison is an actor and a comedian and uh, just a lot kind of changed and, 
I had come out to Chicago for three months uh, last winter to do a residency at the Chicago Magic Lounge, a place I've been a whole bunch and love, and it's just wonderful. Uh, and so I was I was lucky enough that they said yes to me doing my hour-long show every Wednesday, and that's a three-month-long contract. So I was here January through the end of March. And it's the best the, time to be in Chicago, isn't it? I made a choice. <laughs> I made a choice. All right, it <laughs> happened. We don't judge. No, we're you talking should. here from Minneapolis, St. Paul. Don't judge. Yeah. We can't throw stones. Yeah. He, <laughs> this is a place where not only can it rain and snow, but it can do it at the same time. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we know what you're up against. Yeah. yeah. It's it's interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I did that. And then at the end of my time here, uh, we both were like, oh, this place is pretty great. We should investigate. So we started investigating and some some good friends helped us out kind of like uh, steering us in different directions and then in september we are official illinois residents so it's been pretty great yeah well i love chicago okay so we could talk to you all day but we need to focus on one topic because that's what podcasting's all about sure the story that our listeners have heard this episode has at the beginning and the end just a little bit of eli practicing some bar magic because at this point in the Eli Marks timeline, he owns a bar next to his magic store. And in addition to having a little stage area for his other magician friends to perform, he's trying to work up some bar magic. It doesn't go particularly well for him in that story. And I will be honest, as with all other things that I do, I did just a modicum of research, in this case, none, and was surprised to hear someone say not so long ago, no, 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 no. Bar magic, that's not, no, that's not the same thing as close-up magic. They're two entirely different things. And I went, oh, okay. Um, I need to learn more about that. Yeah. And that's why you're here. So you've already told us how you got started doing that. What is the difference between close-up magic and bar magic? Well, I think a lot of people, you're, you're not the first person to think it's the same. Um, can you do close-up magic at a bar? Sure, totally. Um, but if you think about how a bar is designed, most bars, so not take out magic venue bars that are designed very specifically with the goal of performing a show in mind, but look at just any bar in a hotel, any bar you would go to in your town. There is no way that everybody sat at the bar and everybody sat around the bar, at the tables, at the booths, whatever, are going to be able to see you spread the cards on a close-up mat flat on the bar. It's not possible. Yes, if there were four people, you could do that. You could do a card under glass at the bar. Yeah. But when there are more than that, which hopefully there are, that would be the mark of a, of a good bar is that there are people there. It's not, it, it's not possible. So bar magic to me, in my opinion, is a really happy place between super visual and organic prop magic and parlor magic. Little bit of close up, little bit of mind reading, little, you know, whatever else you want to bring in it, great. But it really is about making sure that it's highly interactive, that it, you know, this kind of magic uh, per minute or laughs per minute kind of concept. Although, you know, I, I don't really measure it, but I know that we're go, we go, you know, you have to go because people are drinking, people are socializing, it's noisy. There could be music. There's people coming in that don't know what's going on, that when you're doing the show, you have to keep their attention. And what goes away, the more you drink, 
your attention span, your interest in doing things that aren't more drinks and like talking or flirting with somebody. Like that's not a thing, right? So we have to keep people's attention. We have to keep them involved. And the the bar is a place where you have to take all the magic that you would put on a surface and bring it up to be visual for everybody that sat there to be the more people you can involve the better so to me bar magic is that happy medium between like close up and parlor with very interactive and organic stuff and and when you talk about organic props you're talking about using stuff that would be close at hand at a bar uh, not a crystal tube full of silks, but rather a, a shaker with uh, lemons and limes. I'm so glad that you brought up a crystal tube full of silks because I was like, all right, what's the funniest prop that I can bring up right now? And uh, you just nailed it. So well done. Uh, yeah, that's that's weird, right? Um, however, what if that crystal tube instead was like, I don't know, uh, a paper towel tube with a hole cut out of it and and you're doing it with cocktail napkins like you can easily replace the magic props that you get at the shop and make it feel like it came from from the space um you have every fruit right there you have cups that are opaque which is like half of the half of what magic is you know top cups cups and balls uh you've got them right there they're metal tins that you can make drinks out of and you could do magic with there's just so much right in front of you that why not just use what exists and it takes a little bit of creative thinking of course but overall i think it's really easy to kind of just shift some old hat magic and make it work for the bar um you know no if it came from a magic shop chances are likely it's not going to fit in the space. It's going to feel like you bought it and came into the space with it. But if instead you're being like, hey, can I borrow that? Are you done with your drink? Can I borrow that glass? Then you do something with that glass. That's a miracle now because they were just drinking out of it. So you do something with that glass, they're going to freak out. And that just makes it way more interesting to people who are sitting there. When you When you started out doing bar magic, what did you realize pretty quickly that you were doing wrong? All of it. <laughs> All of a hundred percent. Okay. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, that's half the battle with magic, isn't it? It's like you do everything wrong for quite some time. Uh, and then slowly you start to do things right. Well, I was bar I was bartending and then also doing a show. So the first thing I did wrong was uh not care about the drinks that people wanted to order and just wanted to do magic and so people would be waiting way too long to order a drink and I didn't care and so I got in a lot of trouble. Um as you should, you know. Uh they didn't hire me to perform, they hired me to make cocktails or uh open beers or whatever. So that was number one. Um but in terms of the show, I I also tried the close-up route. Every resource at that time that I had about bar magic showed this flat close-up style. Now, not always, but those were the things that I kind of was more gravitating towards. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the published work that would be, quote, bar magic is very, very flat, very on the surface. But it's meant to be for a bar where at max you've got 10 people and you're probably only doing a show for like five of those people at a time and then going to the other five people and doing a different show for them. So that's a very different 
different thing. And that's not where I was working. I was working at a yacht club. I was working at a Marriott. And so these were places where there would be 150 people that just came out of the wedding in the ballroom. They'd come to our bar and I'd have to make them all drinks. And I'd be like, all right, people shut up. Here's a show. So I definitely made that mistake um, for a while. And then I think the lack of interaction, it was very much just like trying to perform magic, but people are shouting things at you all the time. And I would just like, just try to go past it, move right on, keep going. I'm just working on this new trick. Like, uh, uh, and then I very quickly started realizing that no people want to people want to yell at you and they want you to yell back at them. And so very quickly I started developing like a thicker and thicker skin. So when people would say really weird stuff and they would yet be yelling it. And so everyone could hear it. Then I got to be able to yell back. And so at first, because I was just freaking out and I was young and didn't know what to do, I was just trying to do good magic. And that's not what they cared about. What they cared about was, they wanted to be entertained. And once I got that mindset clicked in, then it all started to much better fall into place. So if I were a magician, which we all know I'm not, and I was doing regular restaurant walk around magic and they, they threw me and they said, you got to go work the bar tonight. I would, if I had been doing a good job, I would have already established sort of the, how to make myself part of the audience in front of me. But the things I'd have to learn would be how to make things more visual for people who aren't sitting right in front of me. And you also had the issue of I'm working and I have to do a bartender thing. So do you think it's easier to come into being a a bar magician cold or already have all the restaurant stuff and come in and and realize you have to do two jobs at once? I think it's beneficial for every every person to work in some sort of service job, especially then if you want to entertain within that service industry. So if you want to be a restaurant magician, if you want to be a bar magician, at some point you should get a job as a server or a bartender, because Mm -hmm. that's when you get to learn how a restaurant operates. So when I was a kid and I would do restaurants, I would get in the server's way and it wasn't really a cohesive work experience for anybody. And I didn't understand what, what was the goal? My goal was to perform magic, but I didn't understand the goal of the people coming in was to eat. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to be there, you know? Right. And so when you start to realize that when you're like, Oh, okay, I'm now because I'm the bartender, the goal is they want to order drinks and I want to make money. So we're going to work together by them ordering more drinks and me making them quickly. I make more money for the bar, for myself, et cetera. Now I add in this entertainment thing and it, we make even more. So everybody's goals are happening. So I, and then I could communicate, like if there was another bartender working, I could communicate really easily with them. One, because we work together, but two, because I understood the language that exists between bartenders. So even in the very first time I performed at the magic castle, I remember you know, walking behind the bartender going behind you and then keep going behind you. And they were like, no magician has ever said that here. What's happening? And then they're like, do you, have you bartended? Like, oh yeah, I know I, I have. And that all of a sudden, suddenly we were much more on the same page with each other. Suddenly there was a, a much better mutual respect between performer and bartender because I understood what they were doing and where they were coming from and could communicate 
if something needed to happen. So it was, I think it's much easier if you at least at some point work behind a bar. And I also just think it's a lot easier to get a job performing bar magic if you're a bartender. To go into a bar and be like, I would like to stand behind your bar with no safety certification, no experience standing behind a bar or understanding how bars work. And I wanna do card tricks. Chances are the restaurant owner is gonna be like, please go home. (laughs) We don't know, hell no. But if you get a job as a bartender and also happen to be doing magic when everybody's gotten their drinks, now now you're interesting now it's going to be much better and you also understand okay i still have to i will have to put away the magic for a second it's getting busy it's fine but then when it starts to die down you get to perform yeah the restaurant owner is going to love you so that's much easier so yeah i i tend to say unless you have an in with someone who owns a restaurant and you can negotiate that pretty quickly i think it's just a lot easier to learn how to make drinks work behind the bar and do magic that way. And it's a good go-to skill to have. Hey, I'm a bartender. Mm-hmm. It never hurts to have that. Have you learned uh, stuff doing bar magic uh, that not necessarily an effect or or I'm not looking for that necessarily, but just some, some principles maybe that you learned in bar magic that would be uh, applicable or applicable to your other magic? Yeah. So... You always, number one, you always have to understand the people you're performing for, what is their goal of being here today? So is their goal to eat and drink? Is it to socialize with their friends? Is it to celebrate someone's birthday or a holiday? Is it to watch a magic show? Um, It's often not to watch a magic show. (laughs) It's often that is merely a cool atmospheric thing that that comes your way? Is it a corporate um, you know, company party that you're pretty obligated to be at? Is it a networking event you don't wanna be at, but it's gonna get you your company more, more money? You have to really understand their goals. And it took me a while to wrap my head around the fact that like, oh, these the people who are coming here, their goal is not to watch a show, it's to eat and drink and then go to sleep in their hotel room. And it just happens to be, there's a level of entertainment. It was rare. I mean, it happened, but it was rare. People would come in and be like, hey, I hear there's a magic show here. I'd be like, yeah, sit, eat, drink. I'll do a show in a little bit. Uh, but it was it was very rare that their goal was to actually watch magic, and it was something else. And then how do I work magic into their goal? And so that was something that doing bar magic really taught me, which is very helpful for corporate, for private parties, et cetera, because you assist in the goal of the event. And that's great. So if the goal of the event is to celebrate the year, the company did great, let's have a great time. That's an awesome goal. And I can for sure, with no extra effort, go right into it. Um, It also means that like choosing material uh, changed because then I would do a lot less material with their drinks or, you know, I'm not doing any sort of uh, fork or spoon bending when you're at the bar because people are eating with those things. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to touch the things that they're about to eat. That was always important, but it took me a second to really fully grasp that concept. So it does, you know, that was a really, really good one. Um, So I think that's important is to really fully understand the goals. Um, But then for me, I think the biggest thing was, like I said, um, uh, just about gaining a thicker skin, just about being able to, it's really rare that something's going to get thrown my way and it's really going to throw me off, Um, which means all to like, most of it is entertaining. Most of it is very fun. 
um, where people says, you know, someone will say something really dumb and then I get to just respond to it and make it a running joke throughout the show or whatever it is. Like that's really fun. And then other times it's, it's seemingly very negative and it ends up in the moment. It's a really frustrating, like, the best example I can give you is not too long ago, there was someone at the bar at the Chicago Magic Lounge. Um, this is very rare, but it, it occasionally happens where someone's very combative, but in a bad way. And so he at one point like called me a bitch uh, wow. and just like lots of just really weird stuff. But because that stuff, again, it doesn't really phase me in the moment. It may, I had to like take a little break and I was like, all right, I'm gonna have the juice and just sit in the back for five minutes. But during the show, you're like, okay <laughs> you in therapy buddy what's going on like and you just have fun with it and then the audience is very much on your side because you're not immediately hating life and because you're like oh god okay time for you to sit down consider your you know think about your actions and uh do you see this bucket of money you will be putting a lot of it in there at the end okay great and so you can make it work and the audience loves you for it but if i didn't have the experience of actually cutting my teeth at a proper bar like an actual bar that ha that is not a magic venue i would not have been able to handle the stuff that gets thrown at you so i'm really thankful for my experience performing for actual drunk wedding guests parties people who have come from out of town and are on vacation with their families whatever it is because those people did not expect to see magic and are drunk and are like just they are giving you whatever comes to the top of their brain and being able to handle that is such a skill again like thinking about someone like Derek Hughes Mac King these guys can handle whatever gets thrown their way mm -hmm. and that is all just experience and so if my experience points were getting to do bar magic and so I'm really thankful for that is there as you look back on it is there a favorite memory you have from doing bar magic or just a moment that stands out where you go oh that was that's one for the record books so i was working at, yes i was working at the marriott uh in north boston and i was a server on this particular night uh, i would kind of bounce back and forth between being a bartender and a server at this place and so the uh, one of the bartenders was working so i was uh, serving tables and then it, it kind of got a little you know dead except the bar was a little bit busy. So I went, was just helping her behind the bar and um, then everybody had drinks. And so I started performing and, you know, there's no microphone, there's no uh, light, pretty lighting system that makes, you know, puts a spotlight on you. I'm just doing magic for these 20 people sat or standing around the bar. And as I'm performing, I, I feel something fall into my apron and I kind of like, I let it go for a second because I'm in the middle of something, but then I, I look just in a moment of downtime and I look and there's, there's just a, like a wallet that doesn't belong to me. And I'm looking like, what the hell? And I look at the other bartender and she just smiles and gives me this really good wink and is like seat nine. And I was like, did you just steal that guy's wallet? what and then over the course of like the next five minutes suddenly i had a phone i had keys oh. i had so many people's belongings just fall into my pockets and so then throughout the course of the show and now because as a bartender you're invisible right no one 
knows that you're there. If you're cleaning up people's dishes and drinks and stuff, chances are if they're talking to somebody, they turn back, the things are just gone. They never even saw you there. You are properly invisible. So she just started taking people's stuff. And then I would, I would be like, okay, and uh, this was your card, the seven of diamonds. Great. Awesome. And, uh, and then I would from a towel, just produce a wallet and be like, and whose wallet is this? Oh, Steven, this your wallet. Okay, great. Here you go. And people could not handle this. It was great. And it would happen throughout like the course of 20 minutes is I would just keep producing phones and keys of, oh, Steven, your wallet again, come on. You know, like just insane stuff. And it was, again, because we had developed a rapport between me and the other staff and because I was, you know, working there, but then also uh, doing these shows and then also like splitting some of the tips from the shows, et cetera, is that because we had this mutual respect for each other, she really wanted to be in on stuff. And so this just became a thing. We would do this every once in a while. So we would just, I would feel something drop into my pocket and be like, all right, she's at it again. <laughs> this is great. But those were, that first day was like, oh, this is glorious. It's just so good. Boy, I'm surprised that no one was arrested that night with all the things being stolen from the <laughs> drunken bar patrons. Uh, it's a great story, though. I hope a- none of those bar patrons listen to this podcast because for them, that was a miracle. That was and a I miracle. hate to pull the rug out of anybody. Uh, who has experienced a miracle because that's just so much fun. And really, if you haven't, John, and I assume you have because I know you, if you haven't put some Victor Borga and maybe the Ed Ames clip from the Johnny Carson show in the show notes, we really should. We got him. We got him. And as I believe I warned people when I went to get clips for Victor Borga uh, down a rabbit hole, Jim has said this this show should be called Rabbit Hole because I'm so glad she brought him up. And it is, you know, we've said this again and again, that the reason magicians are so interesting is that they have such a smart way of looking at things. And to have taken what Victor Borga does, and as our friend Joe Calloway say, ask yourself, what's my version of that? And yeah. for her to go, uh, looking straight ahead, I'm playing the piano turning my shoulders toward the audience. I'm connecting them, doing that back and forth thing. Uh, It's so smart. And then definitely look at the link for the Ed Ames thing, because you can see Johnny Carson grab him. him. He grabs him and he makes him stand there and he pretends to sharpen two axes as he mentally is going, okay, I know exactly what I want to say, but how do I want to phrase this? And then he creates a punchline, which breaks Ed Ames up. Uh, it's just such an example of taking the moment and holding the moment, which, Jim, you're pretty good at that, too. Yeah, not to the level of Johnny Carson, but certainly uh, he would be one of those people for me personally that I have uh, taken what I can and filtered it through myself. And I think I got that idea uh from Lawrence Olivia, who said, steal from everybody. Yeah, uh, It's got to be filtered through you anyway. So most often they're not going to connect your source material with you unless you make it pretty obvious. I stole uh, a Lin-Manuel Miranda line and stuck it in something that I just shot. And I think maybe my kids might be the only person to go, 
Was that, did you, was there a Lynn Mallory? Do you want to yeah. tell us what that line was? Uh, in Hamilton, there's a moment where uh, George Washington is asking him to be a part of the new government. And Manuel, Lynn Manuel Miranda is saying, Do you want me to run the State Department or the Treasury? And Washington doesn't respond. And he says it again Do you want me to run the State Department or the Treasury? And the president says, The Treasury. And Lynn Manuel Miranda goes, Let's go. Just it was that simple. Uh, and it made me laugh out loud when I heard it. And I thought somewhere I'm going to find a place for that. And I did. And imagine in the, in the multiverse somewhere, there's a, a universe where he said state department. And yeah. What would that look like? I'd like to, I'd this like really to should be called rabbit hole. I it really, yeah. I don't know how we got there. I don't but getting back to Kayla, the other thing that I, I took away from it, that I hope all the magicians who are thinking of doing bar, bar magic took away from it was if it comes from a magic store, it doesn't belong in a bar magic routine. Yeah, I mean, wasn't it fascinating for her to immediately be able to say, yeah, a glass tube full of silks wouldn't fit. But yeah. if you took a, you know, if you took a, a, a paper towel tube yep. and cut a hole in it, then it does fit. Yeah. Her ability to instantaneously transfer a magic prop into something generic that would work in a bar, I thought was like breathtakingly quick for me. Yeah. Yeah. Just great. It's, it's again, quoting Joe Calloway. What's my version of that? Yeah. What are you doing? And what's my version of that? So glad that Kayla came back. We'll have to have her again. And I have to go to Chicago and see her perform. I'll drive. Yeah. We really need to do a road trip because there's just no reason why we're not doing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. That's it for 307. Next time. I am so excited. Uh, I didn't think he'd say yes, but he not only said yes, but he said it enthusiastically. One of the first magicians I ever knew personally, uh, Mr. Bill Arnold, uh, is going to come and he's going to talk to us about his mega hit show, Triple Espresso, that ran forever. He's going to talk about his magic mentors, one of whom lives one block from me, and the value of always being in a position to make a miracle. If you're a magician, you all, what you need to do to always be ready to have a miracle at hand. Uh, he is one of my idols, and uh, I just love the man, can't get enough of the man. So it was great that he uh, uh, he said yes to you, John. And, he... and what did... Derek Hughes say when he he played the Bill Arnold role in Triple Espresso for a year, and he said they were he was given the choice of uh, doing his own act or doing Bill's act. And did he say? Yeah, I I, I chose Bill's act because he's my he was my hero, and I wanted to put on the skin. I wanted to put on the skin of my hero. Yeah. So Derek Hughes, fantastic magician, possible serial killer. It puts the lotion in the basket. It does put the lotion in the basket. Well, that's it for 307. We'll see you next time with Bill Arnold. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Take good care. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.